In the last few days, I've been reading Morris Collis's book, Trials in Burma, which was published in 1938 and republished as an e-book by Faber and Faber in 2015. The book is really an autobiography of Morris Collis's time in Burma in the late 1920s and particularly deals with a number of political issues uh, and court issues during his time as a magistrate. Of particular interest for me was learning more about the Peasants' Rebellion in 1930. In that, he talks about how a doctor called Sayasan declared himself to be the new king of Burma and then gather around him a number of people to rise up against the British government. 1930 was, of course, the time of the global, uh, the Great Depression, and the exports of rice from Burma to the rest of the world were severely affected, and that, of course, affected the lives of many of the ordinary people in Burma. I propose to read out a couple of pages from Morris Collis's book, which I thought you might find interesting. Certainly I did, and hopefully it it might lead you to do further research on that period of Burma's history. In Chapter 7, entitled The Rebellion, Morris Collis deals with the fact that on the 28th of October, at 11.33pm, Sayasan declared himself to be the king of Burma and assumed the title of Tupanika Galon Raja. But a couple of months later, very significantly, he gave a speech. It was on the 21st of December. And he said, In the name of our Lord and for the church's greater glory, I, Tupanika Galon Raja, declare war upon the heathen English who have enslaved us. His army marched away and the rebellion began the following night. Collis says that the rebellion provides one of the most extraordinary spectacles of the 20th century. Though a peasant revolt, it was not concerned with obtaining a reform of the rural economy, but was wholly political. The peasants rose because that was their way of expressing the national dislike of a foreign government. Every man and woman in Burma wanted to get rid of the English government, not because it was oppressive or lacking in good qualities, but because its policy was pro-English instead of being pro-Burman. The educated classes, realising that they were living in the 20th century, adopted the tactics which the times offer to unarmed and subject peoples. They presented their claim for a free government to Parliament. The peasantry, whose education was confined to reading, writing and arithmetic, had no notion what to live in the 20th century might mean and having no way except the traditional way of insurrection of showing their dissatisfaction, they broke out as best they could. Their best was the best of an age that was gone. The immemorial beliefs of the country side appeared to them more than the actualities of 1930. They had no arms except swords and a few shotguns, mostly homemade. 
But for them, astrology was more actual than armament. Astrologically, the end of the English rule in Burma was indicated. The science showed that the Burmese would again rule their country about that time. Clearly, therefore, a rebellion was bound to succeed. It stood to reason, however, that a man with a sword could not ordinarily overcome a man with a rifle, because he could not reach him and use his sword. But since the rebellion was sure of success, there must be some way of overcoming that difficulty. Clearly there was a way. In the East, the power of the mind over the body has always been deeply studied. The sages had demonstrated that by meditation, the mind could become so powerful that it could preserve the body from ill. It could render the body, as it were, invulnerable. Everybody could not be a sage and command the power which meditation gave, but fortunately there were shortcuts. The sages had left prescriptions. The Burmese countryside was rich in these prescriptions. At 11.50pm on the day of his coronation, Tupanika Galon Raja drank such a medicine, and there was tattooing. If certain letters were tattooed on the body, the power which those letters symbolised was transferred to the body. By proper use of pills, oils, chanted formulas and cabalistic signs, ordinary people could be as strong as sages and could be made invulnerable to bullets. Armed in this manner, the rebel bands advanced against the forces of law and government. Collis talks about men advancing upon machine guns, chanting formulas. With amulets in their hands, they ran upon the regular troops. They pointed their fingers at aeroplanes and expected to see them fall. They were animated by proclamations such as that issued by the president of the High Missionary Society, a lieutenant of Tupanika Galon Raja, and who declared, Burma is meant only for Burmans, but the heretics took away King Tibor by force and robbed him of Burma. They have ruined our race and religion, and now have the effrontery to call us rebels. The heathen English are the rebels. We have never robbed another's country. Shui Yon, who is known as the Great Doctor, one day addressed the rebel forces from a dais whereupon there was a heap of swords, a pile of amulets, and beside him the gong, Ong Mong, the victorious gong. He said, I now give you amulets, which will render you sword and gunproof. In the case of this gong, it has magic power. Wish for what you want and sound this gong. When you meet government troops, sound it and they will be stupefied. Sound it and their arms will flow away like the water of a river. Sound it and advance and cut them down. Collis continues. Though the rebels had no arms or money and were certain to be defeated in the end, there was great danger that the rebellion would first spread from Lower Burma to Upper Burma and that the peasantry of the whole province would be involved. While by no means all the inhabitants of the affected areas had joined Sayasan, there had been one sinister development. Ex-convicts and other persons of violent characters were encouraged by the general breakdown of law and order to turn bandits and in gangs which were hard to distinguish from Sayasan's own men began to prey on villages and to commit every depredation. People remembered that at the fall of the Burmese dynasty in 1885, such bandits had terrorised Upper Burma for years. 
If the rebellion spread, the bandits would enormously increase and peaceful administration might take a long time to re-establish. In early 1931, Morris Collis sailed for home and after a while felt that he could review what had happened in the last year or two while he was in Burma. Why had the farmers and field labourers of Lower Burma, peasants whom generations of English writers had praised for their gentle religion and manners, their charity and high spirits, flung themselves with desperation in front of our machine guns? For a hundred years they had submitted to our rule, content to call themselves subject of the English crown. What had broken their hearts in 1930, making death even more preferable to longer submission? These were not easy questions to answer, but my experiences had given me some clue to their answer. It seemed to me that during our occupation of Burma, we had done two things there, which we ought not to have done. In spite of our declarations to the contrary, we had placed English interests first, and we had treated the Burmans not as fellow creatures, but as inferior beings. Now, who were the Burmans? How did they come into our hands? We took Burma because it was a weak state which could not defend itself and was therefore a danger on our Indian frontier. For if we'd not taken it, some other European nation might have done so. The Burmese, as a people, had done us no harm, though their court was tiresome and their officials irritating. Major issues of our imperial policy extending far beyond the merits of the Burmese case, dictated our action and delivered to us a people of extraordinary charm. Their religion was admirable. They were manly, sportsmen, like ourselves. They were artists, amateurs of music and the drama. They were wits with a vast relish for the ridiculous. They were good-looking and their women, who had rights under their own Buddhist law, which English women have only recently acquired, were beings whose conversation was infinitely diverting. But there was one thing against the Burmans. They were poor. A Burman who had, as many of the villagers had, his own house and his own farmland, a wife and lots of children, a pony and a favourable actress, a bottle of wine, a book of verse, racing and a carved teak cart, a set of chess, a set of dice, felt himself at the summit of felicity and ignored the English view that he was a poor man because his cash income was about £10 a year. Collis goes on to say, the Burmese lacked the capital and the knowledge to develop their mineral and forest wealth. We therefore let in capital from outside. Englishmen, Indians and Chinese bought concessions and created great industries. The Burmese, of course, shared in the increased prosperity of the country because with a greater revenue, the government was able to build roads and hospitals and foster education. The new industries also provided much employment. But in the long run, it came to this, that nearly all the rich people in the country were foreigners and that the Burmese, from being poor in a poor country, had become poor in a rich one, a very different state of affairs which meant that relatively and from every psychological and human point of view, they were worse off than they were before. All sorts of foreigners lorded over them 
and had little opinion of them because they were poor. When one considers that Collis was writing these words in the early 1930s, and it wasn't until the 4th of January 1948 that Burma achieved independence, it was obviously a very long road to uh, obtaining that end. I learned a lot from reading Collis's book, and if you're interested in the history of Burma, would strongly recommend you get a copy. Thank you for listening.